joining us today. I'm Louise O'Byrne, partner in the Employment Law Group at Arthur Cox. I'm delighted to welcome you to our audio briefing, exploring some of the employment and HR considerations connected to the introduction of the Individual Accountability Framework and the Senior Executive Accountability Regime in Ireland. As you know, uh, the Minister for Finance, Pascal Donoghue, published the long-awaited general scheme of the bill in July of last year, and as expected, uh, the Individual Accountability Framework will include the introduction of a new Senior Executive Accountability Regime, which will apply to certain regulated financial service providers and senior managers within those RFSPs, and will clearly frame her responsibility and decision-making rests within their organisation. And the purpose of today's audio briefing is, is to focus on this regime. As we await the publication of the bill, we thought it would be a good opportunity to draw on the experience from the UK equivalent, namely the Senior Manager's Certification Regime. And to this end, I'm delighted to be joined by Rachel Morgan, Managing Associate in the Employment Team at Linklaters, and Brenton Pollard, Managing Associate in the Financial Regulation Group. Rachel and Brenton will share their experiences and insights into the UK equivalent of the scheme. And I'm really looking forward to talking them through uh, those experiences today. As some of you will be aware, in March 2016, the Senior Managers and Certification Regime, the SMCR, came into force in the UK. Much like the new Irish IAF and SEER are intended to do, the SMCR was introduced to increase both responsibility and accountability in the professional financial services sector. I understand that the SMCR was introduced on a phase basis with something similar likely to happen in Ireland. Brenton, at the outset, can you tell us where the regime is currently at? And more broadly, a little over six years on from the introduction of the SMCR, how successful has it been in achieving its aims? Thanks so much, Louise, and uh, thank you for having us on this, this podcast. I mean, you're absolutely right. The, the SMCR was introduced in March 2016. And initially, it was rolled out only to uh, deposit-taking institutions and investment firms. Uh, it was really off the back of uh, what we saw as the, you know, the financial crisis and the LIBOR and FX scandals, where regulators really struggled to hold individuals to account for, for these failings that occurred. Uh, the Parliamentary Commission on Banking Standards uh, uh, sort of found that the previous approved persons regime was broken. Uh, and that it needed to be fixed with a new regime which set out precisely who was responsible for what and introduced a common set of standards that applied to all individuals who worked in the, the banking industry. Following its, its introduction to banking firms, uh, the regulators really did see it as, as a success. They uh, thought it really improved standards of conduct across the banking industry. Uh, it improved uh, governance and accountability and therefore they steadily extended it to a wide range of other firms, uh, such as insurers who had their own regime at that stage, benchmark administrators, and then gradually uh, all other FCA regulated firms in December 2019. And that, that ranged from your sort of largest asset managers all the way through to your uh, local IFA on the high street. There are now proposals to extend it even further to uh, market infrastructure providers. So it really does now cover pretty much all of the UK uh, uh, spectrum of regulated firms within the financial industry. Yeah, and obviously that's ultimately the aim, the aim here. And, and clearly we will be doing that, or it's certainly expected that we will be doing that on a similarly phased basis. I suppose it will be interesting to, to see how quickly we make, we make our way through the various different uh, firms 
but but that will obviously remain to be seen this is this is a this is one of a series of sessions that that we have been running and we've run a, a number of webinars over the past few months since the publication of the general scheme and i suppose a common theme that is occurring or, or, or a common question that seems to be arising really really refers to managing the employment relationship because this all comes down to people and this all comes down to you know people's behavior and and the standards that that we are, are going to be holding these people to account to uh, going forward so rachel i'm really interested to hear your perspectives from a hr perspective in terms of what you saw clients doing in the uk in advance of the introduction of the regime to prepare for the changes that were coming because obviously our clients are now in that phase where we're waiting for the, the publication of the bill so there's still some unknowns but there's a lot of knowns so clearly people want to be doing something if they can so have you any tips for us in that regard sure um in terms of the UK perspective, we saw a range of approaches being taken by firms, and that largely depended on the size and nature of the organisation. But the key steps that could be taken can be broadly split into three categories. So firstly, changes to contractual documentation, and secondly, amendments to policies, and finally, changes to processes and practices. Um, taking the contractual documentation first, Generally speaking, there's nothing under the SMCR which actually requires firms to issue any new documents or have certain clauses in their employment contracts. But we found that it was a really useful tool to back up key aspects of the regime. So, for example, we recommended that firms made the commencement of an individual's employment as well as their ongoing role, where they were in a certified or senior manager role, uh, expressly conditional on that individual being able to be certified as fit and proper and sat alongside that we would have a termination right potentially on a summary basis um, which allows the employer to terminate the relationship where they can no longer certify that individual. Some other helpful clauses included things like requiring employees to disclose any matters to their employer which would be relevant to their fitness and propriety and we also saw clauses that mirrored the regulatory obligations under the regime so, for example, a contract obligation to comply with the conduct rules or for senior managers to make sure that they complete a handover of their duties in line with their responsibilities. So, as well as updating templates for future use, employers should give some thought to how they want to implement changes for their current population. And we saw a range of approaches taken for implementing the changes. Some firms took the approach of issuing full new contracts to individuals, although that did tend to be more applicable to the senior manager population rather than other certified staff and other firms took a more narrow approach of just issuing side letters and as you'll know with any other change that you would make to employment terms employers will need to give some thought as to whether they want to ex seek express consent from individual to the changes or whether they would be happy to rely on an implied consent following the communication of that change. So moving on to policies, on that side of things, there were some firms that created dedicated standalone SMCR policies, which were all singing and all dancing and explained to staff how the firm was planning to implement the regime and how this impacted them. But that wasn't necessary and a much more proportionate approach could be taken. So you could make changes to some of your existing policies. For example, if you've already got an existing code of conduct, 
that could just be updated to now include a reference to the new regulatory conduct rules as well. And then lastly, moving on to some more practical impacts, um, we found that those who were best prepared for the regime tended to consider how they would integrate the regime into their existing processes that they had in place already, rather than starting from scratch and creating something entirely new. So, for example, in relation to the annual certification processes and fitness and propriety assessments, thought was given to how those could simply be integrated into existing processes, such as the annual performance review. And changes also might need to be made to other processes. So the key things that come to mind, firstly, are recruitment processes. So making sure that you adapt that process so that you obtain all the information that you need for new joiners to make sure that you can issue that original certification when somebody joins you and starts the new role. And then thought also needed to be given to conduct rule breaches and how those would be integrated into existing processes, typically your disciplinary process. Thanks, Rachel. I suppose what I'm, what I'm hearing from you here is that, you know, it's probably advisable not to create a cottage industry in relation to this. And, you know, a lot of firms will have very good, very good processes and procedures in place. And it's about looking at what, what's there looking at how, how they can be used and leveraged to just simply extend them to include the new requirements as opposed to creating mass confusion in, in terms of, you know, standalone dedicated policies, which could get lost in the ether because obviously they, they won't be applicable across the board uh, to the entire population, et cetera. So is that your sense, I suppose, having experienced this now for a number of years in terms of kind of what works best for, for firms? That's right. I think a lot of firms in the financial services industry, particularly if you're going for a phased approach, the firms that will be subject to this regime to start off with, they will be larger organisations which will hopefully already have relatively sophisticated processes in place. And as you say, it's definitely worth leveraging off those rather than going back to the drawing board and starting all over again. Yeah, I think the same can be said for the, the senior managers regime more generally around identify and identification of senior managers, because realistically, uh, it's meant to fit the way that you currently operate the business and, and work in with you know, your existing senior managers arrangements. It's not necessarily intended to, to change the way that you currently operate, uh, operate a business. Yeah, uh, and I think that's a really interesting point, because I think a lot of people have you know, or certainly my sense is that there's a, there's a real sense of trepidation around all of this. And it's about maybe just demystifying a lot of it in a way insofar as, you know, a lot of firms will be will be doing all of this anyway, they're, they will require they will be required to tweak possibly what they're doing. But as you say, it's not a case of, you know, going back to to the drawing board and starting from scratch. We we obviously have existing fitness and probity regime in Ireland, as you guys would have had um, and still have. And I suppose what has from your perspective, what has the impact of moving from the fit previous fitness and probity regime to the fitness and probity certification under the SMCR for employers being on a practical level? And I suppose what I'm really interested in here is has it has it fundamentally changed how firms engage with their employees in respect of fitness and probity? matters generally? Yeah so for a number of firms and particularly those who've been part of some of the later implementation phase it hasn't necessarily resulted in a fundamental change in the employer-employee relationship. It's more been a formalisation of what firms 
were already doing and what they already inspected, what they already expected of their employees. So there has already been a shift both in the financial services industry and the corporate world in general in terms of expectations of conduct in the workplace. So people are already at the level uh, where this is an issue that they're thinking about. And this is just a case of putting it on record and, and formalising it. Um, so whilst, I mean, generally it hasn't resulted in a, in a big impact on the employee population at large, but where we have seen more challenges is probably rather than on the conduct side of things, but on the senior manager responsibility aspects of the regime. Um, that's both been in terms of identifying who the appropriate individuals are to be the senior managers and then allocating the responsibilities to them. But this was very much a bigger step change for organisations who had flatter management structures or where they didn't already have clear delineated reporting lines. And as, as you've already touched on, so a key contributor to successfully implementing the programme was to make sure that you communicate with employees about the regime and making sure that they understand this isn't really anything particularly new. And we found that taking time to train employees on what the regime requires from them and what the regime requires from the firm can go a long way in dispelling any fears or worries about the regime. So, for example, just explaining to employees, look, we've always required our staff to maintain high standards of conduct. We've always required you to be of an appropriate standing. It's not that the bar has been moved, but we're now just being asked to monitor that and document it more formally. So what I'm hearing, Rachel, it really is that obviously you'll have to take a view in terms of what changes you need from a policy, procedural and contractual perspective. And that would be one more extreme. But I suppose what, what seems to be as important is the kind of PR and the comms process around all of this and the softer side of, of yeah. HR around what we're doing and why we're doing it. Um, which hopefully will go a long way to, as you say, kind of uh, relieving or dispelling any concerns or, or worries that the general cohort of employees will, will have about the introduction of the regime. Um, one, when I'm talking to clients uh, with a presence in the UK, something that comes up time and time again um, in relation to, I suppose, challenges uh, around the SMCR has been relating to the use of regulatory re references. And it's something that certainly from my perspective seems to have had a relatively big impact on recruitment practices in the UK. Interestingly, it's not something that as of yet has found its way into the general scheme. So, so we're not sure at this stage if, if regulatory references will become a feature of Irish law. But while we have you here, I suppose I'd be interested uh, to hear from your perspective uh, what, what the experience has been like uh, in relation to the regulatory references issue. And maybe just to give us a brief kind of summary in terms of what the rules around them currently are in the UK. Yeah, of course. Um, I'd say, yeah, the regime on references has certainly made a difference. And I'd say that this is probably the area in terms of the HR side of things that has had the biggest impact. And it's certainly the area which presents ongoing challenges long after the firm has implemented the regime in the first place. So by way of background, so this part of the regime was brought in to address the problem of the rolling bad apple. So this is the employees who were able to move between firms either before or sometimes even after their misconduct had been discovered and their new employer was never made aware of it and this therefore allowed potentially unfit individuals to continue working in the industry. 
And in terms of what the rules require, in summary, it places an obligation on firms to seek references before they appoint someone to a certified role or a senior manager role. And then also an obligation to respond to reference requests that they receive from other firms. And there's a set template which should be filled in. And on that form, a firm is required to list a number of things. But the key areas on the form are disclosing whether they've made a finding that an individual is no longer fit and proper or whether they've taken any disciplinary action as a result of a conduct rule breach. But there's also a catch all question in there, um, which requires you to give any other information which may be relevant to the assessment of that individual's fitness and propriety, which is quite a wide ranging catch all question. Um, although there is a limitation on that. So it only covers the previous six year period. And the only exception to that is if there is a serious issue involved. So, for example, something like fraud, you would still be disclosing that on a reference um, after that six year period has elapsed. So. Firstly, I guess, looking from a sort of more basic administrative level, this has had an impact on recruitment processes um, and onboarding process have needed to be updated to make sure that people are complying with that obligation to seek a reference. And whilst there is a, well, firms are encouraged to respond as quickly as possible, this is obviously an administrative process and it can sometimes lead to delays in start dates for individuals where you haven't been able to get their reference on time. It is still possible to issue conditional certification to people um, and while you're waiting on that reference request. But what we have seen some firms do uh, to minimise the risk of any surprises later down the line is to also incorporate questions into their interview processes, which are similar questions to the points that come up on a regulatory reference. And even if you don't have a regulatory reference regime in Ireland, that might be something that firms might want to consider doing to make sure that they are getting an input into information that might be relevant to the certification process for any individuals. And what we have found is that employees do tend to volunteer the information um, as part of the interview process so that they can get their side of the story across and they can make sure that they alleviate any concerns rather than it just coming up as a surprise once the reference request finally pops through at a later stage in the recruitment process. And I'm sure I'm just trying to uh, kind of uh, cast uh, my eyes forward. I'm, I'm sure that catch all question, you know, is a source of sleepless nights for many HR yeah. uh, professionals in terms of how, what, what do we say? How do we say it? you know we need to be careful that we're satisfying our obligations while not creating any issues for ourselves vis-a-vis -vis the individual or any potential mm -hmm. like unnecessary liability and i presume that that is a, a real risk that uh, you know arises from time to time for firms when they're um when they're looking at these references yeah that's right and i think the approach we've told people in general to take is that if you really have something you would have wanted to say in a reference, but it just doesn't fit into one of the other specific questions because it just doesn't neatly fit that box, this is where you can include it. So typically it includes things where, for example, you haven't actually taken disciplinary action against an individual because they have resigned or the issue arose after their employment had ended. But it's something that 
you would have wanted to deal with at the time and was sufficiently serious that you think it would be relevant to another firm's assessment of fitness and propriety. It isn't there to allow you to put lower level issues in that you just didn't quite meet the bar, but you're really not quite sure. So you want to make sure everybody knows about it. That's not the the design for that question, but it's just to make sure that serious and key issues are passed on as part of that reference process and don't fall through the gaps. Yeah, and um, it'll be interesting to see what happens in that space over here. But but I do think that suggestion that you've made in terms of recruitment processes generally and how they're designed and, and how candidates are interviewed is a really good one, actually. And, and I think it's one that, you know, um, employers should think in this space should think carefully about. Um, in terms of the biggest learnings for employers since the introduction of the SMCR, I presume you know, I presume there there've been a few and I presume a lot of them probably relate to, to war stories. So you're probably limited enough in terms of what, what you can actually say. Yeah. But uh, what pitfalls should we be watching out for here as we move into into this uh, new regime that that I suppose has been a long time coming? Because obviously the context, Brenton, that, that you set out at the start of the at the start of uh, the, this discussion is is the same context that applies here. We've just been a little bit slower getting getting to this space than, than you guys have but you know what what are the landmines that we might just need to be careful about yeah sure i mean i think uh, i think it's fair to say that some of our clients had they had their time again uh, there may have been things that they they would have done differently uh, but i guess looking at across the industry some of the things that um that really helped or that really distinguished some clients from others is getting that buy-in early from senior managers into the regime as to where they see their responsibilities start and end. I think that's really important. Um, and also um, getting the board and senior management on board as to um, making this a collaborative exercise of uh, actually improving uh, corporate governance and standards within, within the firm. I think if we those firms that shifted the focus to um, the fact that this is a improvement uh, and a collaborative improvement on our corporate governance standards really stood out from uh, from those firms where it turned into a little bit of an exercise of trying to shift where responsibility sat, um, uh, a bit of an argument between senior managers as to where uh, risk allocation lies. Uh, so I think that was that was an important learning for. And, and interestingly, that's a kind of a similar theme to what, what Rachel has, has brought out in terms of the softer side of the comms and the PR. It, it kind of it kind of comes down to, to culture buy in uh, and how this is, as you say, how we look. So we're not defensive in terms of how this is being rolled out. And this is this is your side of the house. and This is my side of the house. And never the never the two shall meet as, as such. Yeah, and I think that also ties into the point around um, who's doing what, not only as part of the implementation, but on an ongoing basis. Uh, it's helpful, I think, to uh, look into the future a little bit more and see, okay, well, what aspects of this regime are compliance, uh, legal and HR going to be running on a go-forward basis? And therefore, what aspects should they be driving forward in terms of implementa implementation of this, this regime? I think that's that's really helpful to get up front those those roles and responsibilities quite quite early. Mm. Great, and I suppose 
we often focus on the challenges of these new regimes and, and, and what, what they will pose for our clients. And I suppose that's understandable because it's part of our job. But I would also uh, be interested to hear what, what has worked well. And obviously, you've touched on some of those points there, Brenton, in terms of what firms stood out in terms of the approach that they've taken. But is there anything else kind of from a, you know, procedural perspective or, 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 or from a, you know, not on the softer side of the house that that has that has worked really well? Yeah, I think uh, generally speaking, I, uh, you know, from from our experience and certainly this is the message coming from from the regulators as well. Um, they have seen a quite an uplift uh, in the standards uh, that the standards in way, you know, in the way that senior managers manage their business and um, in particular the way they document um, the the steps that they take in, in managing their businesses. So, uh, for example, uh, the documentation of decision making at Governance Fora, uh, uplift in the sorts of management information that's presented at those uh, and the the minuting of those sorts of uh, of meetings, there there has been marked improvement um, uh, since the regime, and also even simple things like uh, documenting the delegations that are in place, improvements to role profiles and job descriptions uh, to make it clear uh, who is delegated what uh, and when uh, are those sorts of things that we've really seen um, the uplift in standards since the since the introduction of of the regime. Um, you know, I think I think generally it also has been, as I was mentioning earlier, uh, there have been some uh, really good experiences and and light bulb moments where uh, this regime has resulted in in clarity of responsibility. Uh, so where uh, it's become crystal clear who is responsible for what, uh, and where where there's gaps identified in responsibilities, um, those have have led to you know improvements in. Uh, in coverage of, of who's responsible. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Rachel, anything anything from the HR side yeah. of the house that has stood out for you? Yeah, I think from, from that sort of things, I'd say that this has led to an improvement in monitoring and taking action in relation to poor conduct. So I think historically, there was sometimes a bit of a temptation for lower level issues to just be swept under the carpet and not really addressed. And if it wasn't something that was going to be serious enough to result in final warnings or dismissals, then it could have been seen as more hassle than it was worth to actually take steps to address that conduct. And that was then often ignored or dealt with informally. And then in some cases, that meant that conduct would develop into a much bigger problem later down the line. But for a number of firms, the implementation of the conduct rules has led to employees being called up on both a broader range of issues and also at an earlier stage. And I think one of the questions that we often get from clients is, well, what's the right number of conduct rule breaches to have in the organisation? So clearly high numbers of, of breaches are going to be concerning, but it can be equally problematic if there are no breaches at all, because this is more likely to be an indication of issues not being picked up or dealt with by the firm, because clearly no employee population is ever going to be perfect where there are no breaches at all. Exactly. Well, and, and I suppose that is that is an interesting question to pose, and it's it's an interesting one for for firms to reflect on. I suppose when, when they're looking back on this, um, that has been really really interesting, and I, I really appreciate both of you taking the time today to to share your experiences with us. Um, 
I, I've really taken a lot out of it. And, and there's been a couple of really good points that I think our clients, uh, irrespective of what the bill will ultimately look, the bill and obviously the act will, will ultimately look like, I think there's a lot of really good learnings there um, that uh, that our clients will, will really benefit from. So I really, really do appreciate your time. Needless to say, if you have any questions about what we've discussed today, please feel free to, to reach out to me or any of your usual Arthur Cox uh, contacts. And, and obviously anything on the, the UK side of the house, I, I'm very happy to put you in touch with with Rachel uh, or Brenton as, uh, as, as the need uh, arises. So before we sign off today, I just wanted to give the listeners just one final update on, on where we are at with the, the publication of the bill. And Minister Donoghue confirmed uh, in the last couple of days that the general scheme is undergoing pre-legislative scrutiny by the Joint Oireachtas Committee on Finance, Public Expenditure and Reform. And he hopes to receive the, the committee's report soon. However, we do expect some changes in the drafting um, at this stage, and these amendments will be required, we understand, to give effect to the Supreme Court's decision in Zelensky and adjudication officers and others. Um, and, and obviously that decision had a whole host of implications for the manner in which um, administrative and adjudicative and regulatory bodies exercise quasi-judicial powers. So, so from our perspective, where we see that being relevant here is, is the impact uh, on the approach the CBI will be required to take in relation to its enforcement powers. So it'll be interesting to see, I suppose, how that washes through uh, when the bill is ultimately published. So uh, as you know, we are all awaiting that with great interest. Um, and that concludes today's episode. And once again, I would like to just take the opportunity to thank Rachel and Brenton for their insights um, and, and their time today. It's been very interesting and, and I certainly have taken a lot from it. So I hope you have too. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Mm-hmm.